Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Cool, so, okay, so I'd like to warmly welcome back to the show, Chris Leto. How are you doing today, sir? Excellent. Thanks for having me, Frank. No problem. So, thanks a lot for, for joining me. Today's going to be like a, a deep dive into the, the Nimitz incident. And um, to start off with, for, for this point, I sort of need to read out a few quotes, which might be a little bit long, but I think it's important for the context. Um so Kevin Day was the radar operator on board the Princeton who initially saw these strange slow-moving objects on the radar for days prior to the Fravor intercept, which was on November the 14th, 2004. So from the interview that Kevin Day did with Mick West, um, there was a few quotes I wanted to go through. So Kevin Day said, quote, on the day that Commander Fravor did his intercept i'd probably already seen 60 of these things you counted them all they appeared in groups of five to ten at a time and i thought it was some sort of system error until he he intercepted one of them unquote and he carries on to say quote our ballistic missile defense guys was tracking these things coming down from outer space unquote and then he also goes on to say quote they all appeared just off the coast of Catalina Island and they tracked past us between us and the mainland and they all disappeared off my scope in the same point in the sky right above of Guadalupe Island off the coast of Mexico, unquote. So Kevin Day said they were maintaining relative position to each other, in other words, flying in formation and he, he estimates that it's pr- approximately a few miles apart from each other and the one that Fravor intercepted was the lead object in a formation of five I can't find any reference to the shape of the formation but he does say that it's a formation of five objects so the, the final quote there is Mick West asks him um, quote okay were they always in groups or were they sometimes individually unquote and Day responds quote always in groups in fact the only time they ever broke formation is when commander Fravor intercepted one of them and that one he intercepted i drove them to the point in the sky twenty-eight thousand feet and as soon as he got what we call the merge plot position which is two objects in the same vertical piece of sky then on a two-dimensional display it looks like one they've merged it's called merge plot can't distinguish anymore as soon as that as soon as he was at that point in the sky this object went from twenty-eight thousand feet down to the surface of the ocean i found out the next day in 0.78 seconds from twenty-eight thousand feet down to the surface of the water in less than a second no sonic boom unquote so now fravor's account says that he first saw the white water and then upon closer inspection, he sees this tic-tac doing the erratic movements, etc. And my, my question here is, Kevin Day says that the only time it broke formation is when Fravor intercepted it. So do you have any insights as to why the tic-tac may have potentially broken formation? Like, is there any military operations that you know of where aircraft would fly in formation and then one would break off 
to distract while the others continue in formation. Have you ever come across anything like that? Um, yes, definitely. <laughs> you know, decoy tactics, they're a huge part of the, you know, any sort of warfare, essentially. Mm. And if you look, especially, so I specialized in adversary analysis, you know, which was basically Russia at the time. And if you look, we had the overwhelming technological advantage, at, at least, you know, we had way more money. If you look at the U.S., I think the U.S. spends more on its on its military than I think all of our adversaries combined uh, and then some. Um, so really, they're at a disadvantage. And when you're at a disadvantage, technological disadvantage, then you have to use these kind of ace, uh, asymmetric types of warfare, right? You're... Mm. I mean, decoys will always work. You know, we we can use decoys having the technological advantage, but you don't have to, right? If you can see further and shoot further than than the enemy, um, you don't need to worry about decoys, right? You just need to worry about where they are <laughs> and, and and finding them, mm. uh, which is which is getting which is very difficult actually. If you look in in asymmetric warfare, right? So they make that harder, right? If you have the overwhelming advantage to to find something and shoot it, then they're not going to engage, right? You know. That's why you know Russia is not gonna gonna engage with the U.S. on a one for one because uh, they just they're outmatched militarily, but they're very good at ace, asymmetric warfare. They're very good uh, disinformation, um, misinformation. So that that is decoy tactics. Decoy is a it's a disinformation uh, or misinformation, how, however you <laughs> however you define it. Um, so formations are also very very important, right? Your formation if you're in the correct formation. Now everything is optimized, right? Because we don't fight as singletons. A single fighter alone is going to be defeated. That's kind of why we won, or one of the reasons we were able to beat the Japanese. Um, you know, supposedly they were much better at one-on-one dogfighting. They focused on that almost wholeheartedly, right? So one-on-one, they were exceptional fighters. The problem is in a big war, right? There's many, there's many aircraft out there. So yeah, you can be great one-on-one. But if there's five of me, you know, there's five of us, or actually four is a normal fighting unit. Uh, two to four of us. Now we're going to beat you, right? Essentially, or there's a good chance. And and we've, you know, I've I've shot F-22s. It's it's basically rare, uh, but only because there was like 20 of us, <laughs> right? But at the end of the day, man, they're going to run out of they're going to run out of out of missiles and and fuel at some point. And if you have more guys, um, so you can you can still get them. Um, so yeah, basically formations are very important. That's why Ryan Graves, when he talks on the East Coast, and he mentions the gimbal object, right? He mentions that and he talks about the formations. I, I made a video on it at his AIAA uh, conference. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he has an in-depth uh, video on formations on the East Coast. And basically, it's the gimbal object. And out in front, you have a V formation. So a V formation of five contacts that did actually fly kind of differently than the actual uh, gimbal object. Um, so yeah, formations are very, very important in flying, uh, in fighting especially. And, and that is a key point of our tactics, right? You know, class, our formations are classified. How we, how we execute in groups is, is classified. Those are those p- parts where we say, oh, wait, we can't really talk about that stuff. Formations are definitely in there. Um, and you don't want to be alone. So, yeah, there are a- analogies across normal fighting and, and flying instances. Um, but at that, I, I don't really know. Like, w- was it when Fravor actually arrived, they were in a group? Because he only saw one. Did the other... Mm-hmm. Did the others just leave? Um, no. Well, I, I think it was um, it basically the idea is that there was a formation of five of these things, and apparently it was the lead object that um, that according to Kevin Day um, that he sent Fravor out to. But they are, you know, a, f- a few miles apart. He said he estimates pro- approximately about five miles apart. So I suppose as Fravor has approached the the lead object, that there is a little bit of. Um, discrepancy with that because i think kevin day in in that particular interview he, he seems to think that fravor actually approached the object and when fravor approached the object then it dipped down to the surface and was involved in that white water but the way that fravor tells the the account is that he sees the white water first isn't it so um yeah. that that could just be one of those minor details where you know that it's got a little bit mixed up in in the telling but yeah according to kevin day as i say he'd been seeing these formations for days prior and then it was at the point where he he finally decided to send one of the jets out to it, and it was Fravor that that you know went out to the object, and it, it seemed that it, it undertook kind of evasive maneuvers once 
once Fravor had actually gone over to it and that's when it went down to the surface and started zipping around the, the white water. Hmm. So I'm just trying to kind of think from um from uh, somebody like yourself with a military, you know, sort of viewpoint, what could that formation have potentially been trying to achieve? You know, like <laughs> yeah. reconnaissance or like that's the only thing I can think, like some kind of mapping perhaps or something. Like why would you do that? You know, fly along really slowly over the over a journey of a few hundred miles, you know. Yeah, I don't I don't know the the lead element was kind of com- is kind of confusing for me because if you're talking about a, a formation uh, and you're talking about a leader, right? Normally we do and that's what we talk about, you know, the leader trailer, you know, you're organizing who you're going to shoot first, <laughs> you know. Um yeah, also very important those labels are are critical to, you know, executing. But the leader means you're going in a direction, right? So normally, you know, as we're used to planes, they don't stop normally <laughs> in space. So yeah. they, they continue in a direction. So the leader would be the front, the closest one in the direction of travel, right? Which makes which makes sense, right? You can also do, you know, eastern, western, northern, southern. Th- those are also other ways other ways to label inner in, inner group formations. Um, and so when he says leader, that that leads me to believe that they were it was traveling somewhere. Uh, but when Fravor got there, he picked it up based on uh, it was stationary over that you know whatever that whitewater. Uh, that he talks about in the shape loosely of a cross, he said there, were, but he mentions there was a couple crosses. Um, you know, when I did the reconstruction, I just, I simulated it, right. I should have been clear on that and said, this is a simulation. I thought it was obvious. It was a simulation. Um, but he mentions there's a, there's a couple different crosses going across. Uh, uh, it's not just one cross, you know, if that makes sense. Mm. Do you have any speculation as to what that may have been? The, the cross, the underwater thing that was causing the disturbances in the water i mean everything would be total speculation at this point Mm. you know i I know the fact that it just went away very quickly to me that's also strange you know because i don't believe there's any you know land out there (laughs) that that would miraculously based on the tides just go away in those in those few seconds or short minutes that they engage with the tic tac um, so it appears that it's related to the Tic Tac in some way, you know, because when the Tic Tac left, the water went away, right? And and if if it wasn't related at all, I would assume or I would think that it would at least stay there or or go away gradually, you know, the breakwater wouldn't just magically disappear. Um, so in that sense, I think it's related to the Tic Tac uh, in some way, right? They're they're somehow related, uh, and but I don't know, you know, I've heard like there could be ships underneath, right? And they're like projecting some, there's some laser system that can decoy, uh, to decoy ships, right? Maybe it's like an, a, an underwater submarine that has like some holographic laser system. You know, I've, I've heard that, uh, which, which seems crazy as well. Um, so I, honestly, I, I don't know. Uh, I do, th- I did think of a, a couple stories and I think it relates back to one story that the UAP task force investigated. Fravor mentions it and I know that Lou Elizondo mentioned it on another case was on the East Coast was the torpedoes, right? There was two test port torpedoes that were taken. So according to one pilot, a helicopter pilot, uh, that's what Fravor said, is you can see through the floor of those helicopters, right? Written in, uh, you know, I've at least sat in uh, helicopters uh, and the floor, it, you know, where your feet are is transparent, right? So they can actually see to land, right? Because helicopters land a lot, can mm. land up and down. Um, and so while he's going to pick up this test torpedo, this is the story that, that Fravor relayed, um, you know, they hook up the, the diver, the special ops diver, or whatever retrieval diver to get the torpedoes because there's, there's telemetry data in, in, in the actual uh, torpedo, right? You can transmit telemetry data, and I think they're, they're doing that for sure. But best is just get the hard wire, right? You don't want to lose your, your torpedoes. So they test some new fancy torpedo, whatever it is, weapon system, and then they go to retrieve it, and this guy said twice something came out of the of the ocean from the depths, basically, not in the shape of a submarine, and like swallowed this torpedo, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Uh, and and when and that kind of that same story just in my brain seems to be related, or at least of the same type of something coming out of the depths of the ocean and you know doing something we're not we're not expecting. 
Yeah, it's a really haunting uh, thought, that isn't it? Uh, Lou Elizondo talked about it on the Terry Verts podcast at some okay. point. Uh, yeah, it's like he said, it's like a, a, a huge sort of circular island type thing came up out of the ocean. So I had thought about <laughs> the same thing. If there was something like that, that could have been potentially the same thing creating the white water, couldn't it? You know. But then again, there's a lot of different theories. I think again in that Mick West interview with Kevin Day, Kevin Day actually thinks he, he mentions that it, it could potentially be. Uh, marine life that was being irritated by the presence of the tic tac so that's mm. always 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 a possibility uh, but obviously he uh, he didn't actually see it in the flesh so you know that that's unclear exactly but the, i've also thought about like you mentioned the um the gimbal object was a, di- a different shape object to the f- the uh, formation that was flying with it. So, is there a possibility that the, the thing underneath the water could have actually been some kind of gimbal object, and then the tic tacs could have represented the same thing as the, the wedge formation that was flying behind the gimbal or ahead of the gimbal? I forget which way around it was. Yeah, I don't know that. But what's weird is the visual observations are different. That's what's kind of weird for me. You know, if you look at on the west, so let's look at West Coast, right? You have a uh, Nimitz. 2004 that's really just tic tac right no one mentioned about these you know circular orbs at least i don't know of mm. um or any you know there's no cubes inside a sphere there's no visual observations of tic tacs on the east coast that i know of either mm. um you, you know on the west coast you do have the catalina islands with the omaha and russell event where you had those those orbs you know you have the really the kind of amazing video where it's following along in the in the depth of night you know, that orb and it goes under the ocean. Um, so the, it's weird that you don't have the same visual observation. So, I mean, I don't, so when you said they, the Tic Tacs were following the gimbal, I, I kind of, well, you know, graded on me that, well, we don't know, actually, I don't think there was Tic Tacs. Um, you know, it's these weird orbs uh, that have a sphere, you know, have a, a square inside of them, you know, maybe, which immediately I thought was a radar reflector, right? A balloon inside of a, because uh, we do have radar reflectors, um, we used them to practice uh, bombing, right? We used to do radar bombing, um, or they, they still are doing radar bombing, I guess, with better radars. Um, but you can basically map the ground with your radar. It's called uh, SAR mapping. Um, and basically, you can identify, you can locate stuff. And so we would put out radar reflectors to practice this, um, you know, because it, it, it's hard. Well, with the older radars, it, it was more difficult. Now your radars are much better. They, you can get a much better picture of the ground. Radar, radar picture of the ground, but the, in the old school, we'd use radar reflectors on airfields, and you know it's just a big square piece that reflects radar. Um, and I've seen that a lot. Is that's an an answer to what these uh, box in a sphere is? Uh, unfortunately, that those they would move in the wind, definitely, <laughs> right? They would, yeah. they would go with the wind. So this, uh, if the fact that it that they're stationary in wind is just so weird, is so weird to me as a pilot. You know that that just blows my mind. And it's so strange. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's, it's a good point. Yeah, it is the um, on on the east coast. It seems to be more the cubinosphere type shape yeah. things, doesn't it? And that that's probably what was the V formation behind the gimbal. Um, but yeah, it's it, the or similarity. Front. Yeah, it was in front. Yeah, it, it was what was different front. is the gimbal. It maneuvered differently. Um, it, you know, and again, that's how we identify aircraft in the air. You know, everybody's like, it doesn't look like this. Uh, but you know, at, at range, the ranges we're talking about when we're fighting, we don't. Uh, we do identify uh, aircraft, but that's like the last resort, right? You don't want to get into a knife fight with someone with a machine gun. Yeah. But essentially what you're talking about, if you want to visually ID someone in the air. Um, so you want to identify someone because they're in a bad guy tank, you know, or they're wearing the uniform or, you know, they're shooting at you. Uh, <laughs> those are kind of ways to identify in on the modern battlefield, right? It's not going to be like, okay, I recognize, you know, Frank over there, <laughs> and I know he's, you know, he's English, so I'm going to shoot him, right? It, it's, you know, it, you, you're using uh, how they maneuver, how they move, uh, what are their actions, uh, where are they coming from? There's all those side of things to, to identify stuff. So the fact that the gimbal, it actually physically flew different um, than those other contacts, it, it, in my brain, it relates to, it. It's a, it's an indicator that it's an actual different craft or different thing, if you will. Yeah, and it seems to be um, 
different movements, doesn't it, as well? Like the cube in a sphere is not generally reported as doing the erratic zipping about tic-tac-tot of movements either. I wonder if there's anything that can be kind of figured out from the location and the different objects. But an- another thing is the that I'd be really interested to know is the distance that Fravor managed to get within before this thing reacted because again if if kevin day's account is correct that there was a formation going along and then it was it broke formation when it was you know approached by the jet but i don't think there's any publicly available information on that it's probably contained within the the classified um radar data etc no i think they probably don't even have the radar data um like they mentioned the the reason remember everything is basically based on um effective, you know, combat capability and being safe. So when they talk about uh, merge plot, you know, if they could tell you more information, they would tell you, right? Uh, the reason they call it merge plot is because the systems deny us from being able to tell one aircraft from another based on the, the vertical resolution. You know, when, you, when we talk about um, uh, you get a 2D point out, the reason we're getting a 2D point out is a limitation of the radar system's uh, because at that range, you know, you're talking 60, 70 miles away, pretty far. At those ranges, the the vertical, your vertical plus and minus, you know, goes way up. It's, you know, plus or minus five or 10,000 feet. Again, these are all vulnerabilities uh, in our systems. And, and so uh, the, the merge plot, you're probably not going to have much more information. Or, or if we could, it'd be difficult. At least I, I don't actually know how you could get it out of there it, unless the spy one radar is just so awesome that it can discern you know minute uh, or aircraft differences at that range but i think we won't get the the radar data but i i think we know actually how close it is you know i drew it up in my last video the the uh the tic-tac engagement um and i'm not saying that's so accurate but the reason i i'm very i'm confident in the techniques i used really to show the gimbal why it's inside of 10 nautical miles is that I used uh, fighter pilot techniques that we've learned since World War II. You know, we learned it through blood. It wasn't like uh, someone deciding they're going to make some theory and then go out and do all these tests. No, it was like guys on the battlefield. All right, well, Frank's gone. Okay, <laughs> let's let's come up with a new model. Uh, it, it you know, and that's why. And and it, and it overlaid. It's simple. Um, so I think we do know how close he was, and I and I drew it up. So he's at twenty thousand oh, yeah. feet. Yeah, he's probably uh, so I'd say a mile lateral. And at 20,000 feet. So that's, you know, three miles vertically and a mile laterally. You know, if you do the trigonometry on that, what is it like? I don't know, 3.3 miles, say, when he first rolls up on it. Mm. And then when he starts his descent, he's at, he says he's at, he's passing through uh, 18,000 feet or 15,000 feet. And that's when it it starts uh, converting. So I'd say he's probably almost pointed, you know, right off. It's probably right off the wing there, and he's at fifteen thousand feet. So he's probably inside of three nautical miles when it starts maneuvering. Is my guess? Um, yeah, that's interesting. So, so I didn't, I didn't pick up on that um, when I've when I've watched your video. So you reckon it's probably about three nautical miles before the tic tacs reacted to his approach, kind of thing? Yep. No, yeah, it's funny, right? It's just drawn pencil, but no, that stuff's uh, can be very accurate. You know, there's people much better than me at at, at drawing up engagements. Um, but it, you know, it took a long time. I think it's, I think it's close at least it's a yeah. approximation. So yeah, I think he's around, he's probably less than three miles from it when he, when it maneuvers. And then at the end, when he gets close, you know, he's talking about, he's doing that, uh, maneuver to, to close on it, to, to rejoin. He's probably inside of 3000. He said he's inside of 3000 feet. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that in a minute because I was yep. going to ask you about that. Um, but an, another point I wanted to touch on is about Douglas Kurth, um, because, Kurt's account's basically a bit shaky on the details because he's not really done many interviews. Um, I've, I've heard you mention it a little bit in your videos as well that he was he was he was red air if that, if I'm getting that yep. right. So does that basically mean that in the training exercise that was taking place, he was kind of like acting as the the bad guy, so to speak? Hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. So w- we always train against someone in the air, uh, and that's again why fighter training is so expensive. That's why we're going to simulators. Uh, is because now you can simulate many more aircraft instead of just two. Um, but what you do is those those red air, right? They can they can die and then come back, right? So they they yeah, die, yeah. right? They're simulating, uh, let's say, a MiG twenty nine or or a Flanker Su twenty seven, something like that. Uh, when they get shot by blue air, 
they go back, they touch a base and now they, they're back alive again. If you can imagine that. So it's just, uh, just like a game. So that's what he was doing. He was, he was being the, the bad guys for Dietrich, right? So Dietrich is doing a, her upgrade. I'm, I'm assuming it was for her alone, but it's also for everyone, right? Everyone's training, but the foot, the training is always focused, right? We're never just going out there to screw, to screw around. Um, so really the training, all of that training was focused down on Dietrich. Um, but what they're doing as a team is practicing to defend the carrier. So they're integrating with the Princeton, right? The Princeton is the Aegis cruiser, has that awesome radar, the Spy One radar that you mentioned, Kevin Day. Uh, and, and that's really why they picked up all these all these new contacts. Um, so so Kurth is the red air. He's working uh, to try and give them a presentation of how of enemy aircraft attacking the carrier. Uh, and then so Dietrich and Fravert, they're going out with their two ship working with the Princeton to try and stop this this wave of red air aircraft, right? But it's really just Kurth and his wingman pretending to be as many more aircraft as they can, uh, ultimately. So what he did is he heard about it, right? The, the training was canceled. Um, and, you know, he's probably just sitting out there. They, maybe they did a couple sets, you know, practice dogfights. Uh, but then it sounds like he just went over because it was real world engagement. Um, and so he flew over. He was much further away, right? He was uh, 100 miles from the carrier. And Fravor, he was redirected right after he took off, uh, essentially direct west, 60 miles. So it took him a few extra minutes to get there, right? And he's up higher. So he's probably up 28,000 feet because you don't want to get, you don't know what's going on. Uh, you don't want to get into the the engagement itself. So you just go high. So you enter up high, 28,000 feet. All the Most fights go down, right? Because kinetic energy, when you're fighting, you're using all your kinetic energy. So fights are going to decrease in, in energy and altitude. So you just enter high. So Kurth flies over. He was on a different frequency. Um, I think uh, a different frequency means he's on the main fight net, right? We have two two radios. Not, well, they have more now, but we had two. So you have one radio that you talk to everybody, you know, like, okay, we're going, uh, you're talking to the ship, you're talking to everyone in, in the whole fight. And then you have another side radio. It's like you talking to your side buddy, right? It's, uh, we call, you know, whatever, Victor or uh, your alter, alternate radio. And so I think Fravor's just talking with Dietrich or and and Slate on that side radio. So Kurth is not hearing it. He's on the Blue Air only radio, maybe with the Princeton as well. Pro I'm sure with, uh, with the Princeton. Kurth is on a different radio. He's maybe on the Red Air, Red Air Freak. So he didn't hear all this kind of communication going on. Uh, but what I saw from a, a side article is that he did see the cross, the water. He noticed it, and he was surprised by how quickly it went away. That was probably yeah. the only additional info I could find from Kurth. But he was there. He saw the, the water. He didn't see them, right? Because uh, it's very difficult actually to find the, the tally on, depending on the conditions. Uh, but that white cross, very easy to see. Some things just really easy to see. And, and as an experienced pilot, right, I, I know that. And so, and Fravor as well, I'm sure he, he, if he was going to give out any point outs, he would refer to the cross. So you, you anchor a point in the ground, like something that's really visible to everybody. Hey, do you see the cross? Uh, yes, contact the cross. And now you use that as your fight uh, anchor point that you're going to talk off of to uh, basically get everybody's mental model of the engagement to the same. Mm. Yeah, um, from what it seems, uh, Kurth himself didn't actually see the tic-tac, did he? But he did see the water. So it seems yep. like Fravor was the, the first person to actually get eyes on the thing itself. Is that like your understanding of the situation? Yeah, from what I understand, he didn't see any of the fighters. Um he just rove up high. Uh, and, and again, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's just hard to describe how important environmentals are. You know, sometimes it's just really easy to see things and sometimes it's, it's just impossible. You know, you can be right there and you just can't, can't find them, can't pick up the tally, can't pick up the visual. Um, and so, yeah, looking down, it's very difficult to, to see little tiny planes flying around unless you have, a, unless you have a reference or unless you know where it is, right? A point out make it easier to find so kevin day directs fravor to the tic tac the tic tac by this point has uh, broken formation with the others and is now doing weird stuff over the white water and we've heard a lot about you know fravor's credentials and things like that but one of the things that hit me watching your video recently that you did which i'd recommend everybody check out by the way because i thought it was a brilliant um like kind of summary of the situation the way it unfolded the way you talk about it, Fravor really was one of the, the best pilots on the planet at that point when the Tic Tac incident happened. Is, is that right? Yeah, 100%. It's just, it's such a proficiency-based skill. 
and it's just so expensive, right? I mean, how do you get the experience? How, I mean, it must have cost just millions and millions of dollars in missions, right? In training missions, uh, academics, and then real combat. Uh, you know, it's just very expensive to fly combat aircraft. And so there's only a few people on the planet who even have that level of experience. You know, I don't, I didn't go to Top Gun or weapon school. You know, I don't have his, his level of training. Uh, and then it's also proficiency. So now he is not the best pilot in the world, right? Obviously he was at that time. He was, yeah. uh, you know, it's like talking to any, any football or any sports athlete. Yeah. At that time, based on how hard he worked to get to that point and the dedication and the hours put in more, it must've been more than, than most, if not all other, you know, fighter pilots on the planet. So yeah, at that point in his time, he's definitely dedicated. He is overtasked, right? He's taking over a, a fighter squadron is a, it has to be an emotional event. You know, this is the the pinnacle of every combat aviator's kind of career. You know, that's what everyone, no one really even wants to go, you know, everyone that's higher than a, than a squadron commander, they all, they all talk about the days, you know, when I was a squadron commander, as they're telling thousands and thousands of people what to do, you know, obviously they like the power, um, but they do miss being the squadron commander. So at that point, yeah, he is, he's got to be the most proficient, I think, or one of the most proficient on the planet. And he has, even now he has more experience than most uh, pilots on the planet. Yeah, I think that's really important as well because it sort of significantly reduces the possibility that he could have been mistaken about some of the details, etc. I think. I mean, another pic- uh, thing that I picked up on is what you mentioned a little bit earlier, the, the your estimate that he got probably within about 3,000 feet of the tic-tac as he kind of cut across the circle uh, to try and get closer to it before it shot off. So how, how clear would the view of a 40-foot-long object be from 3,000 feet away? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, so it's difficult to do the distances, right? As we mentioned, you know, you're, as a human, we're just used to having the ground always there. There's always a reference. Uh, so your brain does all, all the math to determine how big something is, right? And there's all mm. those optical illusions. As pilots, we get just every year we have to go through training on optical illusions, on not believing your brain, all your instrument tests. So you get very aware of uh, how you, your brain actually, you know, perceives stuff in the air. And then when we have to teach it as instructors, that's where you really kind of learn and, and it sinks in the more you teach it. Um, so the way I would teach, and this is within dog, uh, so dog fighting, right? Within visual range fighting. Um, because your range is very important, right? It, it's basically, it's, it's all about aspect range and line of sight. So that's how we teach it, right? Aspect is basically the, the plane, right? It's orientation opposed to you. If you're right behind someone, you're at their six o'clock. Okay. That's aspect. If you're pointing, if it's pointing right at you, all of his weapons pointing right at you. Okay. That's a hot aspect. You're at one eight aspect, right? So, uh, it's all about aspect. And then you combine that with range. Uh, so how far away is it? And then the change in those two things is your line of sight. So how far, how is it changing in relation to me? Those, those are really the variables we use uh, for fighting. That's really what you need. Um, and the way you, I, I taught fighting at least is what do I perceive? Uh, and then what am I going to do? Right? So it's, it, it's monkey see, monkey do. You keep it very simple, you know, left hand, right hand. What am I going to do with the throttle? What am I going to do uh, with the stick? Right? My lift vector essentially. Um, mm. So those are very important. So in instructing, you teach how do you determine aspect? And how do you determine range? Um, what happens a lot <laughs> is planes are actually quite different sizes, right? The F-16 is half the size of the F-15 uh, or the flanker, for instance. So I've fought against F-15, I've fought against uh, quite a few uh, different types of aircraft. And against F-15s, the common problem is you shoot way too far out, right? Because our bullets, uh, at least in the in the Viper, we were about a mile, right? Is what you could you could shoot an aircraft at. <laughs> so in exercises, it's very funny because the Viper pilot, F-16 pilots, they would shoot from like two miles away at the F-15s, right? N- missing. <laughs> so you'd be like, yeah. you know, it's like you're, you have a water gun, right? But you're standing, you know, twice as far away as the water gun can shoot and shooting at these aircraft you know? uh, and calling them dead in a, in a, in a, in an exercise, right? And, and so we make fun of them. Uh, but the reason is because your brain does the math based on the size of an object and, and it's going to fill in the going to fill in those gaps you know so you're used to fighting an f-16 when an f when i go to shoot an f-16 it's this it's this size when i go to shoot an f-15 it's this size 
and your brain makes it the same. Hmm. Uh, but you can use detail. And so that's what I would use is detail. And so what you're asking is inside of 3,000 feet, you can definitely discern definite shape and color around the aircraft. So outside of 3,000 feet for me, and as we're flying out, so as one of those tasks that we're doing as we're flying out to the airspace, uh, we're doing all our checks for the aircraft, making sure everything's correct, fuel checks, all that sort of thing. But you're also looking out at the other aircraft and discerning, okay, at a mile today, that is what it looks like. You know, so as I'm going out to the airspace, I'm caging my brain, I'm caging all those systems to, hey, this that's a mile away, right? And if I know I'm doing within visual range dogfighting, or if I have a new uh, student, I'll have them just keep close the distance on me and say, okay, what do you see now? Okay, you see color, uh, you see breakout. So I think inside of 3000 feet, they'll definitely be able to see the full shape of a Tic Tac, right? Be able to see it. For sure. Mm. Clearly. I mean, clearly. You see it clearly. You'll be able to see little, uh, if there's any like lines in it, if there's any, uh, like a canopy, right? You, on a, so I'll just talk to an F-16. What can I see at 3,000 feet? I can definitely see uh, the canopy breakout. You know, it's not just one piece now, right? Mm. I can see different color. I can make out the gray of the actual uh, Viper. I can make out the different color. There's there's uh, patterns on a Viper, right? It goes from gray to white on the front. I can see that. I can see that breakout, right? So you can see those different things. Uh, and I can see what missiles he's carrying. Okay, so I can actually see, you can see at range, uh, which would be important in a real fight, does he have any infrared missiles on there? And you can see it sitting on his, um, on the wingtip. So I could definitely break out uh, missiles. Maybe not specific types, but I don't know. I probably could because the, uh, the long range air to air missiles are quite large compared to your short range uh, missiles. So I could easily see breakout. So, I mean, inside of 3000 feet, it sounds far, I guess. Uh, but it's very close. So in training, we break off. So safety is 1,000 feet for normal. You can go to 500 for experience, but normally it's 1,000 feet for safety range. So inside of that, you can't shoot. We, we've effectively uh, terminated the engagement. You know, we're, we're stopping the fight because we're inside of 1,000. It's too close. Mm. Um, so I guess that's a long answer to your to your question. I think it would have been clear. I think he, if there was little things hanging underneath, he would have been able to see it clearly. Mm. Yeah, it's it's amazing uh, to to hear in that much detail actually, because somebody like myself who's you know never flown a jet, you know, it's kind of hard to picture exactly how how much you'd be able to see in terms of detail at three thousand feet. But it sounds like pretty clear, eh? Especially if you're used to kind of judging distances and things like that. That's a distance that you'd be able to, as a experienced fighter pilot, you'd be able to discern pretty clearly what that was if it was another fighter or something like that. Without a doubt. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you're not, you couldn't see people inside of the plane, right? Uh, I mean, I could see like a helmet, for instance, you know, I could maybe make out, mm. move, I could see movement inside of it, but I wouldn't be able to see like, okay, that's an alien, you know, flying an F-16 or something. Uh, you wouldn't yeah. be able to tell that. Uh, but you, yeah, you can definitely tell. I mean, in my heart, so we, we, we practice that a lot is identifying aircraft, right? So, you, you know, one technique is you have a two ship of aircraft, um, and you have one of us is going to pass very close by the, the aircraft we're, we're trying to identify, right? If you can imagine, um, let's say a helicopter. Um, so say there's a helicopter down there, they're hard to identify. Um, but I want to get close. I want to make sure, cause we're going to shoot this thing, right? People are going to die. So I will fly by really close to it. And, but what I, what we determine as really close is less than a mile. Okay. So for me, I think I could identify something as hostile in order to, to, to shoot, uh, it less than a mile is what, is what I would use. So I would consider inside of a mile, I would, and in definitely 3000 feet for sure. Uh, I would consider definitely I, I would shoot. Uh, how many feet are in a mile? We use nautical miles. So it's six, 6,000 feet. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why knots, right? Your normal miles per hour are based on, it's like your Olympic miles, like 5,280 feet uh, or close and then 6,000 feet your nautical mile so that's what we use that's why knots are a little bit they're like 10% faster mm. so we're talking that you know again based on calculations which may be a little bit either way I suppose and um, based on those calculations it was around about 3,000 feet but even within 6,000 feet you'd probably be able to tell exactly what it was and whether or not to actually attack it and so on yeah I mean I'd say inside of three miles uh, I mean environmentals again really depends um we do, it's called high aspect dogfighting. There's basically three types of dogfighting practice that we do. One is defensive, right? It's like wrestling. You know, one person is put into an offensive position. 
uh, and the other person's defensive. So we call that defensive. You're, the defensive guy's practicing, right? How do you jink? How do I not get shot by bullets? Um, the next is offensive. So you just swap that, like in wrestling, right? You're going to start an offensive position, and we're going to see, you know, what happens. The offender should win normally. Uh, but then we also do high aspect and high aspect is, okay, we start pointed at each other, mm. right? So in order to get to that position, we start next to each other <laughs> and then we split, right? So we both turn 45 degrees away from each other. We go out to around five nautical miles, okay? Because around five nautical miles is when I lose sight. Uh, it's, it's difficult to, to see an airplane, even if it's uh, in a, you know, in a uh, plan form, right? If you're seeing it, uh, the, the largest part of the aircraft. Even at that point, I'd say five miles is difficult, but I know it's an aircraft. You know, I can tell it's an aircraft, the way it's moving. Uh, yeah, I can tell it's an aircraft and not a bomber, for instance. You know, I can tell a fighter versus a bomber. You can definitely discern uh, whether it's a helicopter. It, and so inside of three nautical miles, I would say I would know what it is, right? Mm. I would know what. Okay, that's a, that's a fighter. Um, you know, that's some sort of fighter. But it, to tell that if it's an F-18, which has two tails and, and kind of a cobra neck, from a MiG-29, right? The ghost of Kiev uh, MiG-29, which also has two tails and a Cobra neck. Now I would need to get inside of a certain range. I, you know, in practice, I would say that's one mile. So I'm going to try and get inside of one nautical mile so that I can identify it. But maybe it happens, he's planned form at three miles. You know, I've fought MiG-29 before and I could easily tell it was a MiG-29 at three miles. The sun hits it, you see it clearly, boom, that's a MiG-29. Uh, no problem. So yeah, it's, it's hard to tell, but I, I'm sure he knew. <laughs> that's why they thought it was a helicopter, right? At three miles, they're like, oh, yeah, that's a helicopter based on where it is, how it's how it was initially maneuvering um, based on its size. It's like, that's a helicopter. But then he notices that, no, it's not actually moving like a hel helicopter. As he looks at it a little closer, no, no, that thing is not moving uh, like he would expect. And that's that cued him off to, you know, that's when I think he said, uh, do you see, you know, and the guy's like, yeah, I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Great details, man. And like I say, it all just helps to kind of clarify that picture of, you know, of how likely it would be that Fravor would be mistaken. And then it seems to me very unlikely there that he would be mistaken in that situation. Yeah. So moving on to the, the cap point. So yeah. one, once Fravor had had his interaction with the Tic Tac, it, it shoots off uh, in, the, in the blink of an eye, uh, basically disappears and, and sort of reappears at, at the cap point. One thing I only learned quite recently is is the cap point is actually the same point day after day. Is that correct? Uh, it can be. Um, you know, we use the same mission areas day after day. Hmm. You know, you use the same training grounds day after day. Um, you know, you don't need to spend, why spend time building out where the goal is when we could be focusing on, you know, what's our defensive strategy? Right. So, yeah, when you build a mission, uh, you do you have to build everything about it. You have to build, you know, who are the adversaries going to be, um, who are, you know, what are our forces going to have? What are our limitations? And a lot of that is built into the syllabus. Right. I'm sure I'm sure they were following a syllabus um, that gives certain requirements. You know, you need to have at least two blue aircraft. You need to have at least one red aircraft mm. um, to call this a, a valid, uh, a valid event. Um yeah, I, th I think um, I think Fravor had, had mentioned that they had used that same cap point um, for in in the pre the prior days as well, which is was really interesting to to find out because I, I I've heard speculation and probably even speculate myself in the past that how the Tic Tac would have been able to predict you know the, the future sort of thing, but potentially it could have been able to you know figure out what had happened in days prior to know you know where that cap point would be. Um, but in terms of cap points in general, how, how big of an area is a cap point? Is it like a square mile or is it really, really small specific area or larger? Yeah, we use, so the cap point is normally just one point. So on the ground and then you, it's, it's very similar to hold points. So basically the aircraft are going to hit that point and then start a turn left or right. However, that, you know, normal holds mm. are left. And so they would turn left. Right. And then usually it's a 10 mile leg. So then once they roll out, it takes about 30 seconds to do that 180 degree turn. Now they're going to go cold for about 10 miles, right? Away from the threat. That's just a rough hack. You can change that, but normally it's 10 miles and then they're going to turn back in. Right. And that's probably a three mile radius. So I would imagine an oval 
you know, 10 miles on a side and then, uh, three to four miles tall. And, and basically that's also corrected for the wind, right? So if the, if the wind's high, it really changes how, what that thing looks like. So basically it's kind of like a, I would say a 10 mile by five mile, actually a little further, right? Cause they start their turn at 10 miles. So it's probably 13 miles by five mile actual, uh, flight pattern that they're flying. The cap point itself is just a little tiny point where they start, you know, that's, mm. that's our contract agreement. So I guess how accurate did it, was it, you know, did it go right to that cap point? You know, was it right on the little, the 2d point that they had on their scope? You know, that would be pretty interesting. Uh, or is it just in that general area? You know, is it, is it in that, you know, 12 by f five mile kind of area that I, that I talked about? Um, yeah, you know, that's what I'm trying to figure out. And I suppose, again, without seeing the actual, the radar data, you probably, we wouldn't be able to find that out, would we? But it would be very interesting to know whether it was exactly on the, the specific coordinate that they designated or whether it was, you know, say like three miles away from it or something. But we don't, I don't think that's available, that information, is it currently? It is weird that's where they were going. Um, you know, I don't know. Is it also mm. that's where the Princeton happened to be looking? You know, maybe there was Tic Tacs everywhere. Yeah, I don't know. I, there's too too many unknowns there. My my general, if I had to speculate, is they had they had observed the fighters before. You know, they knew they were in that general area. That was just if I had to guess. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, again, according to Kevin Day's uh, account, the, these things were witnessed like days and days, you know, in, in formation. So it, it's possible. And again, not to go into like who was actually piloting these objects that were flying in these formations, but whoever it was or whatever it was um, could potentially have been observing that they go into this cat point. So there is one interesting point in that is. Uh, Kevin Day also mentioned in, a, I don't know which interview, but he said basically they didn't have the fighters out there yet. You know, the ships are already out there for a couple weeks mm. doing their training. Um, but I'm assuming that there was other aircraft going to those airspaces, you know, airspace is scheduled and, and we use them all the time. And I'm, I'm assuming, I just assume this is an assumption is that other aircraft were in that airspace, even though the ships didn't have. Uh, any ships out there, or sorry, any aircraft out there the, the previous two weeks. I guess, let, let me say that cleaner. Um, what's interesting interesting to me is that there weren't any fighters, at least according to Kevin Day, uh, out there the previous two weeks that we know about at least. Hmm. Um, but I'm assuming that they use other aircraft at least, other fighters, maybe, maybe even Air Force fighters, uh, used this airspace. It is pretty far south though. So that's the only kind of key point I would ask is, were any fighters flying in that airspace the previous two weeks? You know, was it being used as cap points? Because that would add kind of a, an element of, well, when were the Tic Tacs observing our fighters? You know, if, yeah, it, if yeah, they weren't out there the previous two weeks, then it would have had to have been previous to that. Um, so that's kind of the one thing I would ask uh, Kevin Day and those guys when I get a chance. Yeah, that, that's that's a really interesting point. So there, there wasn't actually the training exercises with those specific jets hadn't started yet, but Correct. maybe there may have been other aircraft using that that area as a cap point. We don't. That's really what know Kevin that. Day mentions is that they were watching. The, I think Gary mentions as well. Gary Voorhees is that they were watching these things for a couple of weeks, mm. and finally they got jets out there, and so that's why Kevin was was able to convince the Princeton captain, you know, to allow them to vector. Uh, and yeah. that also leads me to believe that maybe the, this training was not even for Dietrich, you know, maybe it was an air defense integration exercise, uh, required by the Princeton, you know, it's almost like the Princeton maybe gave up their training, uh, almost like they were in charge of the training, <laughs> if that makes sense. Hmm. So one, once it's, uh, the Tic Tac has appeared at the cap point, um, Underwood is basically sent out in a separate jet to go and take some film of this thing, uh, where it's appeared. And uh, looking at your analysis of that FLIR video that's filmed by Chad Underwood, what I found really interesting is the, the slight difference in shape of the object. Uh, initially, at the beginning of the video, it resembles more like a kind of a ball shape. Is, is that right? And then as the clip goes on, it sort of seems to be more of a typical tic-tac shape. So is that correct? And, and what's your thoughts on, on why the object looks a bit different to the beginning to the end? Yeah, it was very interesting to me. You know, initially, it was so different from what I was expecting 
the orb, right? So I called it kind of three phases when I when I did my analysis. Is the first phase is right when Chad Underwood locks it, and it just looks like this ball or orb or something. I don't know. It's a it's a weird shape, and I just didn't even know what to make of it when I first saw that. You know, I thought it was just uh, errors in the pod. You know, some sort of mistake in the system. Um, but I actually noticed there's some similarities to the the blimp photo off the East Coast. Uh, when when I looked at that one, it it had the same shape actually as that flare one. You know, if you overlay those, I might have to make a video about this. But if you overlay the blimp over the flare one orb image, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it just maps out almost perfectly to the shape. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think that seems too coincidental to me based on the angles and the aspects. But I was very very interested in that because when he goes to TV mode now. Uh, it looks like a normal uh, Tic Tac, you know, what we would assume is a Tic Tac. Mm. Uh, but it has that, you know, the the Tic Tac shape, essentially. And then that's in TV optical mode. So I assumed it was some issue with the IR, right? Because in IR, he's getting this weird effect. It's like this weird, um, di- you know, orb type thing. But when he goes to TV, it looks uh, like a Tic Tac. So I assumed it was kind of like some sort of, I don't know, glare, if you will, or, so- or something in that. That was my initial initial thought. Because then when he goes to IR, after after he goes to TV, so he goes into the, the third phase, I call the the IR phase, um, now you can see that it looks like a Tic Tac as well, like clearly. I mean, that that was initially, I, I think everyone in the media focused on the TV optical image. And then I just zoomed in on the on the IR image. And man, it, it just is, it looks like a very clear image of what Fravor described as a Tic Tac. Hmm. Do you think there's any any possibility of of like um, <laughs> that it might be that you're looking at the the tic tac like end on first and then it, it either it moves or the angle of the jet or the camera or something moves or do you think it's more something to do with the different modes? No, I think I think that is it, um, and that's what I thought initially is that if it's a perfect circle, right? Then we're we could be looking at the just the end of a cylinder. Mm. Um, but what you, what I realized in the orb is it's not really a perfect circle. Um, and it, and it does look like that blimp, (laughs) the blimp looks like to me, like, you know, if you look at the acorn sphere blimp engagement, I would love to talk to those guys, those pilots, but it looks like at the beginning, it's like a sphere. And then at the end we get like this tic tac kind of shape. Right. And, and uh, unknown, right. We don't have much detail on that. It could be three different objects. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that it is the same same thing. So in that case, what I see is is a, a, the sphere of energy, and, and maybe that would be the end of the tic-tac that we're looking at or the, or the first part of the FLIR 1 video. And then as, as it whatever turns or <laughs> emerges into a tic-tac shape, um, that's what we're actually seeing from the blimp, uh, from the blimp photo. So that, that would be my – again, this is all just speculation – we don't really know, but that first part of that video, the FLIR 1 video, is really mind-blowing. I don't know. I would be very curious. It doesn't look like it's out of focus, right? It looks like it's actually in focus. Uh, it doesn't look like it's receiving any excess glare or, or some sort of issue. So, I don't know. It's just a mind-blowing, mind-blowing image. Yeah, it's just fascinating, isn't it, the uh, the whole clip? But yeah, just just going into a little bit more of of what Underwood has had to say as well. Um, Chad Underwood did a, an interview with uh, Intelligencer, and it was for NYMag.com, I think it is. Um, so a few few quotes that he, he said in that uh, quote: "I really don't want to get into what Dave saw specifically because I didn't see it with my own eyeballs." Unquote. So Underwood basically confirming there that he didn't see it with his own eyes, um, and. I had initially thought maybe it was invisible, maybe it was cloaked or something like that, but then he actually goes on to say, uh, quote, I was more concentrated on looking at the FLIR. It was inside of 20 miles. You're not going to see it with your own eyes until probably 10 miles, and then you're not going to be able to visually track it until you're probably with inside five miles, which is where Dave Fravor said he saw it. So at that point, I didn't see anything with my eyeballs. I was more concerned with tracking it, making sure the videotape was on. Unquote. So, what I wanted to ask you is: first of all, does that all make sense? Is is that if something was approximately forty feet and twenty miles away, would that be too small to see with the naked eye? 
Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sometimes at range, I've seen um, even at 20 miles, you know, I've seen F-15s, if they turn plan form, you can see wing flashes, you know, you can see flashes of light. If you know exactly where to look, you know, I, I've been st staring in areas and maybe I'll see a little dot, um, you know, move across a cloud and then lose it. Uh, but 20 miles, that's very far. You know, this is more what I'm talking about. It's 10 miles, you know, 10 miles. I'll see uh, a dot for sure. You can pick out as it goes across. If there's like two ship of fighters and they go in front of a cloud, you know, I'll see, I'll pick that up and see it and be like, you know, aha, you know? And, yeah. and so I, yeah, those numbers all line up. I think it's correct. Hmm. And then he says, um, when he went into the, the civic, which I believe is carrier vehicle intelligence center, uh, for for the debrief, they they made a copy of the eight millimeter tapes onto hard drives. So is that something that that you've done, like on the the, the planes that you flew? Was it tapes for the actual radar and the the optical cameras? Yes, yeah, definitely. So it it was eight millimeter tapes. Was it was a huge pain in the ass, right? Because we had three tapes. Well, let's say two tapes. So you have these tape machines. <laughs> you go out to the jet, right, and you put in these eight millimeter tapes. And then it would record. Sometimes it wouldn't, you know, some tape wouldn't work. And then in the debrief, if you have a four ship, right? so imagine this. So Fravor versus Kurth, right? So you have two fighters on his side, two on the other. That's uh, that's eight tapes uh, yeah. that you basically have to manage. And so they're always going off sync. <laughs> so it's a huge pain in the ass uh, to do the debrief. Um, but And then we went to digital tapes, right? Where it's just direct onto uh, a digital video recorder. Um, we would, we would use the eight mil tapes to debrief and only if it was something we wanted to save, like in this, in this case, someone obviously said, Hey, save that tape. And so they took the eight mil tapes, they brought it to a machine and they recorded it to a digital, uh, and to make it like an MP4. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah. That, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, what would happen to the tapes after? Like, generally, do they get stored somewhere and archived, or does that tape, same tape, get used again and get recorded over I, on the next flight? They can save tapes, but then you know those are classified, and yeah. so now you got to worry about tracking this additional classified uh, material. Um, so, but I'm sure they saved it. It, it. I'm not sure they saved it, but I would guess that they saved it for a while at least. Um, but once you have, <clears throat> once you have the digital MP4s, you know, no reason to save the tapes. So just send them back. Yeah, yeah. Just what, keep using get, them. They'd get recorded over again on the next flight. Yeah, because you got to destroy classified equipment, right? Because once classified data has been on there, it's classified. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't just erase it and then go use it in your home eight mil tape player. Yeah, and do they generally have audio on too as well? Because obviously there's no audio on the the FLIR video, but like generally speaking, would it would it record yep. audio? Audio is on everything, and that's how we would match it. That's how we would uh, sync them. <laughs> so you'd be yeah. listening up to someone saying something, and then you would sync up the the tapes using the audio. So all of them had audio. Yeah. I wonder where why the audio didn't get included. Maybe that's a good point. You know, I didn't. I haven't thought of that before. But yeah, the audio should have been on all tapes. I don't know, maybe they had in the Hornet, they only took the audio from the HUD tape, but that doesn't make sense to me. I, my guess is it's on all, and they just, I don't know, they didn't think it was important to keep them, keep it? Yeah, or, or possibly if, if they would if they would mention some kind of uh, classified data that would, they were seeing on one of the screens or something, they, maybe they had to wipe the audio in order to get it declassified or something. I don't know. I don't know. It was interesting, though, that it wasn't a classified... Uh, it, it had to be moved from a classified system. So in my understanding, it had to be declassified or at least someone had to say, hey, this is not classified because anything that is on a classified system, right? no matter if you put any data onto a secret computer, that data is now classified, right? Um, or you need someone to say, who, who's in authority to say, hey, I confirm this is not data, you know, this is not classified and I'm going to move it to an unclassified system. Mm. So... <clears throat> They had to move it at some point. You know, I've heard before people saying, well, it's, it's, it's unclassified. Not really. Anything on a classified system is, is classified. And it takes someone to take it off of that. And I think that's why we end up where everything just ends up being classified is everything on our systems is classified because it takes work to make – it takes a lot of work from someone to confirm that it's not classified and then convince 
<laughs> the other everyone else that it's not classified and then release it, right? That's why they know it, they never want to release any stuff. It takes extra work to do all this stuff. It's much easier just to collect everything and then use that data however we want because um, we're already running up against huge classification problems. Hmm. Yeah, and then we're kind of coming up on time now, but I just wanted to, to mention this as well because something that I um, thought was worth digging into. So um, obviously the clip that we see, the FLIR clip, is only a minute long, but Underwood says that he initially picked up the object on, on his radar. So that clip, I'm guessing, would have been filmed after he's initially picked it up on his radar and so on. And Underwood's actually quoted as saying, uh, quote, the thing that stood out to me the most was how erratic it was behaving. And what I mean by erratic is that it changes in altitude, airspeed, and aspects were just unlike any things that I've ever encountered before flying against other air targets. It was just behaving in ways that aren't physically normal. That's what caught my eye because aircraft, whether they're manned or unmanned, still have to obey the laws of physics unquote so that's direct quote from underwood so it seems that he himself actually witnessed it doing things that didn't obey the laws of physics and stuff like the erratic movements um so do you think it's possible that some that may have been some earlier footage that took place before the clip that we see which actually may have caught some of those erratic movements yeah 100 uh, percent. i think they recorded all of it you know i mean w there was issues with the eight mil tapes where you would only have about an hour and a half of, you know, recording capability. Um, but I would assume, I mean, obviously for this, he had the tapes on, right? And so uh, yeah. basically when you, as soon as you take out, at least when you fence in, right? When you're going into getting your systems, I mentioned that kind of already when I'm getting my systems ready for combat, I fence in going across the fence in the bad guy land, you're going to turn on your tapes um, for sure. So he should have it from well prior to the engagement to probably when they came back and landed. Right, because you know that recent F thirty five crash on the on um, when they were on landing, that's part of your analysis is the tapes that gives you a ton of information. The tapes on the aircraft. So anytime a aircraft is moving, we're required to have tapes on, right? So that you can get you can you can analyze it for safety afterwards. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure they had it. They just didn't. They didn't record it. The data didn't get out, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. So that's that's her. Uh, fascinating to think isn't it that there may be somewhere out there on a hard drive actual you know more footage which actually shows some erratic movements we're never going to see the the radar stuff probably but there may actually be more FLIR video available somewhere that would be an amazing idea yeah and on that though is he didn't see it with his eyes right so when he's yeah, saying right. it's, it's it's acting different from anything i've seen it's going to be more in relation to what i mentioned earlier right is um you know, using these aircraft systems, actually the WIZO, you know, they're trained to use their, their eyes as well. Um, but primarily they're trained to use the systems, right? They're using the aircraft systems to determine what's going on in the world, right? Where are the bad guys and, you know, how can we identify and shoot them essentially? So using those systems, this thing appeared to do things he's never encountered before. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what I understand it. It's not that he... And and jamming can do that, right? So jamming is, can make it appear like the thing is doing something that it that it is not doing. That's the whole point of jamming, right? Is deception to make you think that it's doing something that it's not. So it would just be then it's then it's. But he's experienced, right? So and the Navy's very good at jamming. So I'm sure he's he's trained against jamming. <laughs> so he mm. must be aware of it, and his systems were telling him. So it, it would be kind of that would lead me to some sort of spectrum of, okay, well, is it outside your normal jamming parameter? You know, what you've seen, um, could it have been so different that jamming wouldn't make up for it? You know, at some point, jamming doesn't account for it. If, if, if you get a valid lock, you know, and it's, it's off your nose for 10 miles um, and you track it for a long time and then all of a sudden it's off your nose for 15 miles, there's something weird going on there. And, and I don't know if, is that due to jamming or is that due to actually the thing doing crazy things? Yeah, that's a, a great point uh, because like you said, he, he didn't actually see it with his own eye. I mean, he says in that quote that I read out there, that's what caught my eye, but I think he's talking like figuratively there and the fact that he's seen it on his sensor systems doing things and that, that sort of, you know, was what um, piqued his interest as it were. But like you say, there would be that question of whether the movements, the strange 
physics defying movements would have been some kind of side effect of the jamming or something like that um, but obviously the fact that Fravor actually did see it with his own eyes and um, doing those erratic movements as well that kind of adds another another layer in there doesn't it yeah I mean the, the big things I learned from the from the flare video is the the video of it matched Fravor's description and I don't know how much of that is Fravor afterwards, you know, after the engagement, I'm sh- he said he watched the tapes, you know, is some of that basically he sees the video. And so he can that affect his memory of the actual object itself, you know, uh, but, but for me, the, the power of it was it matched it, you know, it looks like a Tic Tac. Um, I guess the strongest case would be that Fravor never saw that video and he and he gave his same description. Um, so I guess that would be, maybe there's some sort of bias that, that could have been created there. But for me, the strength is it looks just like a tic, it looks like a tic tac. Mm. They were able to lock it. Right. So obviously it was, it was returning radar energy. Um, it sounds like it was doing at least some erratic jamming, if not moving around crazily. Uh, and so for me, the big thing is something was there, right? They locked it. And then the most interesting thing for me is they couldn't intercept it. They couldn't intercept it. That is very interesting to me because they had the E2 Hawkeye out there, right? This has this giant radar. They have their radar. Uh, they had the Princeton somewhere around there. I don't know if the Princeton was actually tracking this engagement necessarily. I bet they were if they're interested in, uh, in these crazy Tic Tac things. And, and the F-18, right, is the, is the fastest thing out there that, that we know about, right? I mean, rockets are fast. You know, you can shoot missiles, stuff like that is faster. But there's nothing that we know about that can just outrun a Hornet. So then, it, did it just go stealth? Did it, you know, where did it go? That that would be my biggest question. And and then we have all of our best technology out there doesn't track where this thing left. So whether you whether you believe Chad Underwood, you know that he was slowing the pod, and so he 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 says the thing did this amazing maneuver and and, and left, kind of like what Fravor's description was, um, or you believe that it that it didn't uh, do it on its own. Either way, they couldn't find it you know, with all of our systems and they couldn't intercept, they were flying right towards it. So that, that's most interesting part of that whole engagement to me. It looks like exactly like a Tic Tac, something was there since they intercepted it. And then where did it go? Well, I think that's a perfect moment to, uh, to end there. So it's just fascinating, man. I mean, the Nimitz case in general is, is yeah, one of my favorites to look into. And the more I dig into it, the more I learn about it, the more fascinating it gets. So um, thanks very much for, for coming on and discussing it. I really appreciate it. No, definitely, Frank. The, the Nimitz one changed my mind for sure. That's yeah. why I heard that. And I, I mean, I just don't know how you discount it. You know, there's just so much evidence, so many witnesses, <laughs> so much data. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love for some some more like data or some kind of another person to come out of the shadows on it. Cause there's plenty of other people who could potentially come out as well. You know, I hope they do. I mean, I, I know there's, there's gotta be a fear to publish as you're aware, you know, anytime you publish it, I still get nervous, man, filming my videos. I still get nervous publishing. It's a scary, scary prospect, you know, but I, I hope they do. I hope they come on. I, I will talk to anybody that wants to give information. I'll keep your data secret if you want it to be. You know, I could just say, hey, it, it was a crew chief, you know, or there's another pilot. <laughs> Maybe, you know, the pilots are kind of not, there's there's few of them. But anyone else that wants to speak on it, I would love to talk to them. Yeah, hopefully we'll see a bit of that. Well, anyway, we'll call it a day there. Thanks very much again. Thank you, Frank. UFO Thinker Podcast.